For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. O Lord, we come confessing and acknowledging and thanking you that this is your word. And so we pray that you would captivate us by the word of your servant, the Apostle Paul, and cause us to understand what he has written here. And then, Father, by your spirit, apply it to our own hearts, because we know that this word is meant for our profit in instructing, in reproving, in correcting, in training in righteousness. So do that great work in us today by your spirit, through your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could pray for the church, what would you pray? What would be the focus of your praying? How do you pray for Christ's church? Let me ask it another way. If you could wish anything for a brand new Christian, what would it be? If you knew a new Christian, a recent convert, a young believer in Christ, what would you want for them or hope for them or pray for them? Perhaps that they would find a good gospel-preaching church. That would be a good thing to pray for. Perhaps that they might have a strong season of personal devotion and prayer and study of the Scriptures. Perhaps that they might have good growth and holiness as they set out on the Christian life. Perhaps that the Lord will one day provide for them a godly spouse to encourage them and sharpen them and live the Christian life together with them. All of these are wonderful and good things. Well, this morning we have the Apostle Paul coming at that question. We find Paul's prayer for a new church, a new group of disciples that have just come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Times are exciting, energy is up, enthusiasm is fresh. But suddenly it seems that before the new members even have barely even been received and the welcome lunch committee has barely finished washing the dishes from the welcome uh, reception, that Satan is already about plaguing these new believers with insidious and false lies and false teaching. And so Paul's prayer for us is actually quite instructive for what we might pray for new believers facing these trials from the evil one. But frankly, this prayer is not exclusively a prayer that we might pray for a new church or new Christians. No, this is a prayer that you and I can pray for every Christian and every church, including our own. And now I picture us this morning as though we're walking past Paul's prison cell and we can hear him on his knees pleading for the Colossians. We're eavesdropping on the Apostle Paul and prayer. And we get a sense, don't we, of the heart of this man for these Christians whom he has never met personally but of whom he's heard wonderful things. Here are his priorities. These are things that burden him as he thinks about them and prays for them. I suppose if you were to eavesdrop on my prayers, you might see some very different priorities. I would, I think, be ashamed for you to hear the self-centeredness of those priorities that so often burden my heart. But not so with Paul. His priorities listed in this prayer, as I hope we'll see, if we will take them in and make them our own, 
will not only change our prayer lives, but will change our Christian lives in a very thorough and ongoing way. So this is Paul's prayer for this young church. Paul is both concerned for them and yet thrilled for them and for their newfound faith in Christ. And this passage is a real biblical feast, but I'd like for us to focus on four things in particular. In verse 9, we see the reason Paul prays. And then at the end of verse 9, we see the request Paul makes. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see the result Paul desires. And then in verses 12 through 14, we see the rescue Paul celebrates. And at the heart of his prayer, the main point that we should take away for our own prayer life is this. Pray for God to fill his people so that we may be fully pleasing to him. So first, the reason Paul prays. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Notice three observations in this opening sentence from Paul. First, Paul prays for Christians he has never met personally. Right? He says, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Remember, Paul knows about them because he's heard about them. He's actually praying for people he's never met. He's interceding for people he doesn't even know, but of whom he's heard these wonderful things from his faithful servant, Epaphras. And as each new report comes in of God's work in this church, it becomes grist for Paul's constant intercession to God for them. We must ask ourselves how extensive our own praying is. Do all our petitions revolve around our own families, our own church, or our own cherished but rather small circle of friends? Of course, we are primarily responsible to pray for our own circle, aren't we? If we don't pray for our own circle, who will? But if that is the furthest reach of our prayers, if we become parochial, our prayers may reveal how small and self-centered our world is. So it will do good, do us good, to learn about gospel work in parts of the world that we will never be visit, find out what we can about the gospel churches there, and learn to intercede with God on their behalf. I'd encourage you to get a copy of a book called Pray for the World that will help you to do this. Use it in your devotions. Use the weekly insert to pray for one of our sister fire churches every week. Doing so will help enlarge our horizons and increase our ministry. And the second observation is that Paul prays constantly. He says, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Paul was never content with the status quo. There was so much that he could thank God for, and yet there was also so much to pray for. And we too have much to be grateful for, but always much to pray for. To pray constantly expresses our constant dependence upon God. We are saying that we cannot live independently of him. Not even for a moment. And there are some things for which we must pray again and again. For example, right, we learn to thank God at every meal for our food. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples assumes we should ask for food on a daily basis. And likewise, it will not do to set aside time today to ask God to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ, if we will not return to that request for another six months or so. Now, we need some of God's blessings constantly. And as we ask God for them constantly, so he constantly meets our need. And the third observation is that Paul links prayers of thanksgiving to prayers of petition. That's what, the, for this reason, is signaling. He's referring back to just what he just said in the previous prayer of thanksgiving. The apostle says, when we heard the report from Epaphras about what was happening to you, about how the Holy Spirit was working in your lives, about the graces that he had implanted, your faith, your love, 
your hope, we immediately started praying. We immediately engaged in a continuous round of prayer for you. Paul says this is what prompts his praying, and it should prompt ours as well. Now, that may seem to be a rather strange response, but there's a great principle here, right? Every spiritual work is a motivation to more prayer, not a discouragement of it. Every work done by the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers is an encouragement to pray for them even more. You see, so often our prayer is in response to disaster or affliction or difficulty. And of course, that's an entirely inappropriate time to, to pray. There's no better place to go to God than when things are going wrong. There's no better place to go than the shelter of the wings of the Almighty when we're in an hour of need. Right? The psalmist said, call upon me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But Paul's logic also drove him to prayer when he saw God at work. And that's very important for us because we don't tend to think that way. Normally when things are going well, we're tempted not to pray, to put it on autopilot, to let God handle it, to presume upon his blessings, to cease to pray faithfully for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. But not Paul. That wasn't his spiritual logic. His, his spiritual logic said, God is at work. That must be a reminder for me to go to him in prayer and ask him to continue that work and to increase that work. This is such an important principle, brothers and sisters, because those of us who have learned the Reformed faith and know of God's initiative and salvation and God's doctrines of grace are sometimes tempted to think, well, if God has taken the initiative, why should I bother praying? But that's never Paul's logic. When Paul sees God at work, that is an impetus to prayer. Why? Because Paul knows that prayer is the instrument which God has ordained to bless his people. The old Puritans used to say, when God is preparing to bless his people, he sets them a-praying. When we see God at work, that's a prompt for us to pray. How encouraging it is to see Paul's example. Is this what we follow? When we see God at work, do we become complacent in prayer? Or do we implore him all the more to continue and increase that work that he's doing? Paul's example reminds us that we must pray not only in the hard times, but especially in the times when spiritual work is going on, that the work of God might continue and grow. So that's the reason Paul prays. Let's turn our eyes now to the content of his prayer, the request Paul makes. Look at the end of verse 9. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Here's the main part of the petition. Paul wants God to fill them up. He wants them to be permeated and influenced and moved by the knowledge of God's will. And isn't Paul being clever here? Don't you love how he takes that little buzzword that these false teachers are, are battling around and he uses it against them, right? Fullness. That's what they were offering, right? If you just follow our rituals, engage in our mysticism, practice our asceticism, listen to our teaching, then you'll discover the secret path to real spiritual fullness, only we can provide this deeper spiritual knowledge. You can't get it from Epaphras. You can't get it from the apostles. But we can give it to you, Colossians. And so what does Paul say here? Well, let me tell you something, Colossians. You already have access to the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace of God in the Lord Jesus. How full he is of grace and salvation. See how it is that the Christian can drink to satisfaction from the full foundation of riches and blessings that are his in Christ. 
And so this is my prayer for you, that you would continue to be filled with the truthfulness, the fullness which comes from Christ, a knowledge that is in accordance with the word of God, a practical knowledge that impacts your daily living. That's the kind of knowledge I want you to grow in. None of these mystical techniques and biblical rituals that they're peddling upon you, you don't need that, church. My prayer is deeper, truer knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his prayer. So Paul wants them to know that he too desires fullness for them, but not the fake fullness that the false teachers were offering. No, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. This isn't a secret. This isn't to be found in some mysterious ritual. This isn't a second blessing to which they're introduced. No, this is the knowledge of the will of God. He wants them to know God, what he's like, and what he wants for them. And when he speaks of the knowledge of God's will, it's, it's not that will that we are often preoccupied with, like who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? No, he's referring to that, that general global will. He says, in, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your holiness. This is the will of God. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's that general will, the things that please God, that bring honor and glory to him. He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of all those things. And notice how he characterizes this knowledge. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. As I say, what I want you to understand as a church body is that you will understand God's will so well that you will live well. That's what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is living well according to the knowledge of God's will. Understanding is that which is discerning well, again, from the knowledge that we have from God's will. This is what he wants for them. And notice, he doesn't ask for it in small portions. Right? I want you to be filled, and I want you to be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Right? There's never a point where we arrive at everything we need to know. And there's a marvelous balance here then, isn't there? Right? On the one hand, Paul really is insisting that the healthy Christian life requires pursuit of knowledge of the truth. He wants us to love truth, wants us to know as much truth about God, who he is, what he's like, what he's done, as we possibly can. It is not possible to be godly and not think deeply about God, about his word, about ourselves, and about God's world. And Paul prays for growing knowledge. He wants Christians to love doctrine, love truth, love to understand who God is and what God wants. Right? That's on the one hand. On the other hand, he is not at all interested in encouraging or producing insufferable know-it-alls who live only for abstract theological debate. He's not looking for heady, bookish impracticality. He wants us to understand that knowing God truly is related to living blessedly and joyfully. Knowing God truly is essential to the blessed life. The Puritan William Perkins famously said that theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Right? What a great definition of the study of Christian truth. It's the science of living blessedly forever. And so he's praying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God that consists in spiritual wisdom, practical know-how to navigate the challenges of life and understanding. He wants us to live the blessed life that comes in the wake of knowing God truly. And don't skip over the word spiritual. 
Really, it applies to both terms, really. Spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That doesn't mean, right, it's not, it's not the opposite of practical. You know, it's spiritual or it's practical. No, it doesn't mean useless. Actually, it probably should be capitalized. Spiritual with a, with a capital S because it's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Right, where do you get this wisdom and understanding? This knowledge of God's will that helps us connect profound truth to practical life. Where does that come from? Well, it's not an inborn or innate instinct. It's not a natural ability. No, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. That's why Paul's praying and not merely exhorting the Colossians to study their Bibles, which is a wonderful thing to do, by the way. But he's praying, Lord, as the truth begins to fill their minds, press it down into their hearts and help them live it out day to day by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's praying for, the fullness of truth brought to bear on the heart to change the life by the mighty, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That ought to be a priority in prayer for all of us who are serious about the glory of God, about knowing Him, and about living for His praise, right? Crying out for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's prayer request. One of the reasons this prayer, I think, is so marvelous is because of how different it is from so many of the prayers that we pray. You see, Paul's not indifferent to practical needs or tangible needs of these believers, but he sees, doesn't he, that the practical needs of these fellow believers can only be met out of the riches of their fellowship and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this prayer, we're humbly reminded that in our prayers, far too often we ask for far too little. So here in this prayer for these new believers, we see that we ought to pray regularly for the riches that are already ours in Christ to fill us abundantly. And that's what we can pray for one another. So that's his petition, the request Paul makes. But notice, thirdly, the result that Paul seeks. Look at verse 10. Here's what happens when God begins to answer that prayer. Right? And he begins to fill us with the knowledge of his will and all Holy Spirit wrought wisdom and understanding. Here's what happens, verse 10. He prays that we may be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that, that is, with the following result, you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I want you to know so that you may walk. I want you to have knowledge of his will so that you may live according to what pleases him, to walk worthy of the Lord. Now that's a high standard. What does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? Paul does not for one moment mean that they are to walk in a manner so as to become worthy of God, extending his grace to them. That would be to turn the gospel on its head. Though in fact very many people do turn the gospel on its head at this very point, don't they? If I walk in a manner worthy of him, then God will extend his grace to me. Paul's not talking of walking in a way that earns grace. Nor is Paul saying we should try to demonstrate to God that he hasn't made a terrible mistake in loving us by the way that we live. Right? It's not about earning his grace or showing God that we are worth being loved by him. That too would deny the gospel. That's not what Paul has in mind. It doesn't speak about our merit. It doesn't speak about our particular righteousness. Paul's asking that we would live in a way that displays how worthy God is. It's a walk that reflects well upon him who saved us. We are his children. Let us walk in a manner that commends the Father who has loved us. That's what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. Not that you show yourself to be worth loving, but rather you show how worth loving God is in the way you live day by day. You walk in a way that displays how worthwhile it is to sacrifice 
and to labor and to pour yourself out for his honor and his glory. We are to emulate our Savior. We are to walk like him as he did in the world in faithfulness to God and love to men, quietly honoring God in all his works and ways, walking according to his word, blessing those who curse us. All these are part of the, the manner of life that flows from a true knowledge of God. The worthy walk is a life that expresses the grace we have already received in Jesus Christ. And it shows, in self, it shows itself in this, that we want to please God. Our motivation for behavior is out of a sincere and a supreme desire to please God. Indeed, that we would be fully pleasing to him. If you please God, it does not matter whom you displease. And if you displease him, it does not matter whom you please. This must be our motivation. In other words, what is going to have his divine approval? What is going to have the smile of God upon it? The idea is that as we live our lives, will this speech, will this conduct, will this attitude, is this pleasing to the Lord? Does it bring pleasure to him? Or will its expression bring shame and dishonor to him? Will it commend him or will it defame him? And it's something that the only way we can understand that is by understanding his will. This is what it means to walk the Christian life in a, in a, in a way, in every manner of our lives as a church body that will please God. And to do that, we have to know his will. You know, as a child, I, I liked to please my parents. And the worst thing they could have ever done to me in discipline would, would be to look at me and say, Matthew, you have truly disappointed us. Your behavior has truly let us down. Those words would have laid down my heart like a stone, right? Because I loved my parents, wanted nothing more than to please them. Paul wants us to have that attitude towards our Heavenly Father, to desire to earnestly please God and to gain pleasure from pleasing Him. You remember maybe Eric Liddell in the Chariots of Fire movie when he tells his sister one of the reasons why he runs. I run because when I run, I feel His pleasure. What's, what's Eric Liddell saying? When he runs to the glory of God, he knows the pleasure of God. God takes pleasure in it because he desires to please God. And he says, there's no feeling in the world like that to know that the Lord accepts my offering to him. And Paul says, that's how I want you to live. I want you to have a knowledge that leads you to desire to please God, not slavishly, but enthusiastically. But then Paul goes on and he gives us the practical expressions of what that will look like. And he does that in the second part of verse 10 and all the way down to verse 12. It's very easy to discern it in the Greek because there are four participles. And, and it's evident, in, I think, in our translation here in the Christian Standard Bible, four participles. Right, how is a worthy walk manifested? When we begin to understand the will of God and as we begin to seek to conform our lives seriously to what that will is with an aim to fully please him, what are we going to see? And Paul says, a life... Pleasing to God consists of four things. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened by God so as to display endurance and patience. And giving thanks to the Father with joy because of how he has graciously saved us in his beloved Son. Let's take these one at a time. Bearing fruit in every good work. True knowledge of God bears fruit. It's not fruitless. Right? There are good fruits which result from it. Love to God. Love the neighbor, self-denial, sacrificial love. All these things are entailed when the believer walks worthy of the Lord. We will have 
and incredible fruitfulness in the labor of our hands, in the service of our lives, in every good work, whatever it might be, whatever we apply ourselves to, we know that we were created in Christ for good works, that we should walk in them, and those works that we were created for, we will be bearing fruit. Those works will be fruitful works, and we will be doing it in every good work. Notice how comprehensive it is. In everything that God gives us and equips us and gifts us, we are able to do a good work. So a life that pleases God is a life bearing fruit in every good work. Holiness shows. You can see it. The Christian life isn't about joining a club. It isn't about learning the correct religious vocabulary or putting on your Sunday clothes. The Christian life bears fruit in good works. Right? When the gospel is at work in your life, you want to get working for God. One of the ways we will know if and when revival, spiritual renewal has come to First Baptist Church is we will all begin to feel a sort of mounting internal pressure as the gospel bubbles away in our hearts till we feel like we've got to let it out in works of service and loving our neighbors and in telling the world about Jesus Christ. We will bear fruit. A life that's pleasing to God, that walks worthy of the Lord, is a life that bears fruit in every good work. Second, it's growing in the knowledge of God. Now, that's interesting because there's a circularity here, isn't there? You remember his opening request. His request is that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And now he's saying that a life pleasing to God, a life changed by that knowledge, is a life marked by growing in the knowledge of God. You see the cycle. It's actually a beautiful description of the Christian life. The more you get to know God, the more that knowledge changes your heart, changes your motives, changes your appetites, changes the way you behave and live. And the more your character aligns with his character, the more of him you will know and enjoy. And the more like him you will become, the more of him you will go know and enjoy. And around and around it goes in a beautiful fellowship with the living God as he remakes us in the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on, remember that Paul has used these two expressions before, right? Bearing fruit and growing that we find here in verse 10. He's used these back in verse 6. Only in verse 6, he used them to describe the word of the truth, the gospel, right? The gospel was bearing fruit and growing. And now he says he wants the Colossians' lives to bear fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. What's the connection here? I think he wants us to understand that bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God is a gospel work, right? It is, a, it is the gospel that bears fruit and grows, and it does it in our lives as we bear fruit and grow in the knowledge of God. You know, some of us, we might get impatient with the preaching of the cross, right? I've been a Christian for years. I've got it already. Jesus died for sinners. We trust in him. We receive forgiveness of our sins. Yes, it's wonderful, but... I need more. I need the deeper truths. Let's move on to something else already. But don't you see Paul saying, no, the way, the way to grow is not to grow past the gospel. Or it's not to get beyond the gospel. No, the way to grow is to send your roots ever more deeply down into the gospel about what God has done for you in his son, how he bore our sins in his body on the tree, how by his obedience and by his blood you've been reconciled to God. And as the wonder of that penetrates ever more deeply. You begin to know God better. You get to see his heart more clearly. You hate your sin more ferociously, and you live for him 
more single-mindedly. So if we're to grow in the knowledge of God, if we're to bear fruit, if if we're to become men and women of God, a church that glorifies God, we need to be rooted and growing in the gospel of God. Third, being strengthened with all power. We love power, don't we? We love to see it manifested. And the standard here is God's glorious might, right? That is, that's what we're empowered with, Paul says. I don't think you can think of a higher power. Now, why do we need so much power, right? I'm not a, I'm not a president or a general. I'm not a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I'm just a little me. Why do I need all this power? Well, it's interesting where God's power tracks. You know, it doesn't track where, where we might think in terms of miracles or marvelous feats or mighty messages. Whereas power tracks is interesting. We need it, so, he says, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Right? Perseverance under pressure. Endurance is a word that means to, to bear up under a weight. Sometimes used of a military unit hard-pressed by their enemies. It's basically coming under a burden and with persistence bearing under it and continuing along with that burden on your back. And patience is is long-suffering. So the picture here is bearing long without breaking down. That's the kind of strength that he wants for us, that we might possess a quiet spirit in the face of trial, that we would be able to have the Spirit of Christ who is able to pray, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Paul says, that's what I want the power to produce in you. Endurance, patience. Not just a raw power, which gives you some sort of an experience that other people haven't had, but a power which empowers your Christian life to endure with patience through trials. We see that manifested in Paul, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. There we see those virtues worked out, as Paul says, as, as he speaks of his own ministry. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may be displayed also in our body. It's the strength to manifest Christ in trial. That's what he wants. Not that we can bring down buildings with our bare hands, but when the whole fabric of society itself falls apart and all the circumstances of our life seem to be falling apart, we ourselves can bear up and bear along. And not that we can physically prevail against our foes, but that we can possess our souls in self-composure and contentment. This is what this empowerment is. And this is a passive participle, meaning God is the strengthener. John Owen said, We have no power from God unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. This, is, this power to live, this power to endure, this power to be patient comes from outside of us. It's not a power which is naturally within us, a power which just needs to be untapped or unrealized, needing to be awakened or unlocked. No, it's a power that comes from God alone. And then fourthly, Paul says in verse 12, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Paul's trying to help the Colossians understand that they ought to give thanks. Not just that, but to actually feel the gratitude, to become thankful. 
Right? He's doing more than just exhorting them to thankfulness. He's trying, isn't he, to fan the flames of gratitude in their hearts. And he's going to do that now in the next section by rehearsing three great gospel truths in verses 12 through 14. And that's where we'll turn our attention now. The reason Paul prays, the request Paul makes, the result Paul seeks, and finally, the rescue that Paul celebrates. And we can sum up this rescue in three key words. The first word is enabled. The Father has enabled us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The second key word is transferred. The Father has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And the third key word is redeemed. We have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Three simple words, enabled, transferred, redeemed. Three words that sum up the gospel. Three words that feed the fires of gratitude to the Father. Let's look at them. First key word we said that sums up Paul's message here is the word enabled, or like another translation, qualified. That's, we spend a great deal of time and effort and energy and money and resources trying to become qualified. We work hard in school to be as qualified as we can be, to position ourselves for the next phase in life and for advancement. In fact, there are, are a few things that carry a greater burden of shame than the thought of being disqualified. Right? It's one thing if you are unqualified. Right? Maybe if you are unqualified, you can become qualified. Go back to school, learn a new skill. But it's another thing entirely when you have been disqualified. And the Bible says that is our condition. That's our circumstance. It's not that we are unqualified for the kingdom of God. If we were merely unqualified, then perhaps it's conceivable there was something we could do about it. No, that's not the situation. The situation is that we are disqualified from the kingdom of God, from life forever with him. And that means that we are guilty. We are condemned in God's sight by the standards of God's own holy character. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where we have, been found, we have been found guilty and excluded from life with God. That is what our sin does. It disqualifies us. We often think of ourselves as pretty good, though, don't we? We remind ourselves that if we fall short, eh, we've only just fallen a little short. We can try to reassure ourselves that, you know, we, maybe we'll be graded on a curve. If we miss the mark, we only just miss the mark. We'll have another opportunity. And that might give us some measure of fleeting comfort, but the fact remains, if we fall short, we fall short entirely and forever apart from Christ. We are disqualified. We've missed the mark, and there's nothing we can do about it. But then Paul says, when we were disqualified like that, God, in his rich mercy, he qualified us. And the qualifications were met in full for life with him forever. We had no hope of earning a place in God's presence. And yet God has made provision for people like you and me who deserve to be excluded so that despite our unworthiness, despite our disqualification, we might be included. He enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. God has qualified us for something that we could never qualify for. You know, some of you can't get a house loan for maybe a small house, but you're qualified for the kingdom of heaven because of the grace of God, right? Paul's talking about the work of Christ, right? The qualifications the Father provides are not our qualifications. They're Christ's qualifications. The Father is pleased to accept Jesus' own record of perfect obedience in place of our own. Christ's blood makes us clean. Jesus' 
robe, robes us in his righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, but his. We fall short, but Jesus meets the mark. We are shut out, but Jesus brings us all the way home. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. And friend, our message to you is not that you need to exert more effort, to clean up your act, to do better and try harder in order for God to accept you. After all the effort is expended, all the work is done that we can do, we still fall short. We're still disqualified. Our message is that God has provided everything necessary for disqualified sinners in his Son, Jesus Christ. He has done it all. You don't need a strategy to work your way into God's favor. You need a Savior to qualify you for an inheritance among the saints in light. As the hymn writer said, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my tolling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease the weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. The first word that, Paul, that sums up Paul's message is enabled, qualified. What a glorious gospel word. Jesus Christ is God's provision for disqualified sinners. That by his righteousness, we might be qualified for an inheritance among the saints in the light. And notice the second key word, transferred. Paul goes on to say he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. This is not a sequential thing, right? First you're rescued and then sometime later you're transferred. No, they're concurrent. And then he presents two kingdoms. The first one is ruled by a terrible dictator. It is the domain of darkness. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul recounts his apostolic commission. And he says, He was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The realm of darkness is a dictatorship where Satan presides and there he holds all who do not know Jesus Christ in a terrible bondage and slavery to their own sin. But there is, Paul says, another kingdom. He calls it the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Now everyone in this room lives as a citizen of one of those two kingdoms. There's no neutral ground, right? no space between. You're either a citizen of the tyrannical kingdom of darkness, or you have come to be a citizen of the kingdom of the Son. And the good news is, everyone who is a citizen of the kingdom of the Son, every one of them, was once a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. But there is a constant one-way traffic out of the darkness and into the light. You see, what God does through the work of Christ, it's really a kind of a new exodus. That's kind of the language he's using here. You remember the story? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, living under the brutal tyranny of Pharaoh, helpless and in bondage. And God acted with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, and he brought them out of bondage, out of slavery, into a land, into a kingdom of promise. And Paul's telling us now, he's, he's elevating that to a, a, another degree, that Jesus Christ breaks our chains and set us, sets us free and brings us into the realm of his love. We were prisoners, helpless, powerless, enslaved under sin's 
terrible tyranny, and Jesus set us free. And that actually brings us to the third word. It's closely related to this, this exodus motif. Look at verse 14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is one of those great Bible words that sums up this very heart of the good news, the gospel. It's a word that means to buy back a slave out of their slavery, to set them free. It's what God did in the Exodus. But the Exodus is really pointing us to the true final Passover lamb by whose blood we come to be set free. When the judgment falls, though he has died, in fact, because he has died, we live, we're free. Redemption really homes in on the shedding of blood. Freedom through the payment of a ransom, the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says we have redemption. Because he died, we live. Because his blood was shed, we go free. We have it all in him. In union with him, by faith in him, we are united to him. All the benefits of his work become ours, and we are redeemed. And notice the particular focus or aspect of redemption to which he calls our attention. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Christian message is this. We are guilty, you and I, and God is holy, infinitely holy. And therefore judgment, justice, is waiting for us. But this holy God loves to save sinners. And his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the friend of sinners. And so they work together to secure our pardon. The Father sends his Son to obey and bleed and die. The Son bears our guilt and sin at the cross. God treated him as if he were guilty with the guilt of my sin and condemns him at the cross so that when we trust in Christ, God treats us as if we were righteous with the righteousness of his Son and he forgives us of all of our sins forever. Friends, let me ask you, if your sins have been forgiven, if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, set free, are you a citizen of the Son's kingdom? Have you been qualified by the Father for an inheritance among the saints in light? Well, what should you do if you have? If you answer yes, joyfully give thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance, who has transferred you from the domain of darkness, who has redeemed you by the blood of his Son. Does your heart thrill to hear the good news? Enabled, transferred, redeemed, Christ has done it for you. There ought to be a reservoir of gratitude that nothing can empty or drain away in your believing heart. If today you stand forgiven, there may still be sorrows. Satan will buffet, trials will come, yet here's our blessed assurance that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So you can sing through tears, perhaps, through unbelievable trials and griefs of many kinds. It is well with my soul. Forgiven, qualified, transferred, redeemed. That's fuel for endless eternities of praise. But what if you know today you can't sing those words? What if today you know you've not been forgiven? You've not come to Christ. You're outside of him, unclean, unforgiven, a citizen under the domain of darkness. Well, friend, let me plead with you, let me beg with you to see what God has done for sinners in his Son. All the qualifications needed are available in Jesus Christ. All the righteousness to cover our every offense. He can take you from slavery and bondage that doing your own will will always condemn you to, 
and he can set you free. There's nothing to do to receive the qualifications of his righteousness, the transfer from darkness into light, the redemption from slavery into freedom. Nothing to do but to receive it, to turn from your sins and to trust in him alone. You don't qualify before you come to Jesus. You just come as you are right now, disqualified, unclean, unforgiven. You come to him and you say, Lord Jesus, wash me. Lord Jesus, break my chains. Lord Jesus, set me free. And he will. And he does. He's done it for this church. We are qualified, transferred, redeemed. All the reasons we need for a life of gratitude, an eternity of thanksgiving. Do you know anything of it? Don't leave without the matter settled. Today's the day of salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that it is through prayer, it is through calling upon you, even though we have enjoyed many blessings, we're conscious that we need more. Father, we know your will in part. We desire to know it more fully, that we ourselves might be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Lord, our desire is to live a life worthy of you, a life that brings glory to you, a life that is pleasing to you, a life that honors you. We pray that you would grant that, that it would be manifested in the way Paul himself prays under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May these things be fulfilled in us. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that are bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened by your power, and that endurance and patience would mark us. Father, we give thanks to you as qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You've rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of our blessed Savior, in whom we are redeemed and forgiven, and in whose name we pray. Amen.